How's, uh, how's the summer treating everybody? Everybody having a good summer? That's right. I'm a teacher, so I like legitimately have a summer. I realized, like, I think after like high school, like I realized, or after college, I guess, I realized that summers are like not really a thing for everybody. Like, but with a teacher, I actually get to take these three months off, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, anybody do any camping this summer? Raise your hand if you did any camping. Raise your hand if you did tent camping. Ooh, the hands have disappeared. So I think like a month ago, my wife and I took our two kids. We went with uh, my sister-in-law. They have two kids. And uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law went camping up at Bull Prairie. I know that sounds like I'm super rugged and know where it's at, but I had like no idea where I was going. We went there. It was a lake. It was cool. But tent camping with a three-and-a-half-year-old was fine. Tent camping with a one-and-a-half-year-old was pretty dicey. Um, so we see, you know, we're driving out there, we see all these like trailers going by and we're just like, oh, they don't, they don't, they're not camping. They're not really camping. And I'm like, yeah, they're not really camping. And that was a really good idea. We should have done that. Uh, but yeah, it was interesting. My poor wife, she, uh, our, our one and a half year old just, he just couldn't, he couldn't hang. So she like didn't sleep the whole weekend. So she's, she's a pro, but that was a month ago. So I think we finally now recovered from that weekend and we're, we're back at it, which is good. Uh, Hey, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 today, verse 23. It's good to be back with you. This morning when I came in, I saw Brett, and I said, oh, man, you guys got new chairs. (laughs) Brett was like, yeah, we've had those for like a month. And I was like, yeah, I've been watching the live stream. I've been doing that. Yeah. Uh, Okay. They look comfortable. They're nice. My boys like sliding them around, which is fun. Um, Okay. So we're in a uh, section. Jesus is just... uh, done his triumphal entry. And what's going to happen today is uh, Jesus is going to kind of ramp up his pressure on the nation of Israel. And there's going to be some application before that. But before we get into any of that, I want to talk about Formula One racing. Does anybody here watch Formula One racing? Okay, that's all right. I have a picture. It's fine. Uh, So NASCAR? Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. All right, here we go. Uh, So here is a guy named George Russell, and in 2019, he was a rookie, all right? He raced for this team called Williams, and Williams was like this historically famous Formula One team. And uh, as he raced, he was faced with this conundrum. There were three other rookies the same season. At the end of the season, they were going to crown a rookie of the year, the best rookie driver, the best new driver to Formula One. And so George was asked to submit his reasoning for why he should be considered the Formula One rookie of the year for 2019. Uh, and in Formula One, they turn left, but they also turn right. That's one of the main differences between that and NASCAR. So, number one, this was his criteria. He said, here's my criteria. I think I should be rookie of the year, and here's my first criteria for this. He was the most consistent qualifier, consistently placing himself in the same position to start the race in nearly every single race of the season. And consistency is key. So he says, on consistency, I by far and away have been the most consistent rookie of the year. His second fact was this. He gained the most positions on opening laps compared to the other two drivers. Over the course of the season, he had gained two positions on opening laps, while the rest of the rookies had collectively lost 11 positions on opening laps. So he says, based upon my aggressiveness on the opening laps, I should be rookie of the year. And then he gave one more fact. He said, he was the fewest points behind his teammate at Williams compared to the other two rookies. So in Formula 1, they have two cars. 
and they have a driver's championship that one driver wins, and then they have a constructor's championship, which a team wins. And so they combine the points of those two drivers that they collect at races, and that creates the driver's championship. I'm not sure if that's actually how they collect the points, but since you guys don't watch Formula One, you can just go with it. Uh, so on his criteria, he said, basically, if you're looking at the facts, based upon the facts, I am the rookie of the year. But when we drill down a little closer, we discover that his criteria, while true, doesn't necessarily mean he was the best driver. Now, on qualifying positions, there are 20 cars that qualify for a Formula 1 race, and George Russell had consistently qualified 19th. So consistency, yes, but did that matter? Not really. He gained the most positioning on opening laps, and the reason is it's hard to lose positions when you're starting last. <laughs> and he was the fewest points behind his teammate at Williams. His driving uh, partner here, Robert Kubica, had one point, and George had zero. He was the only driver in the 2019 Formula One World Championship to not score a single point. That means he never once finished inside the top 10 in any race. So was he consistent? Yes. Consistently bad. <laughs> and what this tells us is that if we can set up a criteria for success that fits our narrative, we can look successful. But when we drill down as what the facts actually are, there's something missing and we're not really succeeding Instead, we're just applying an arbitrary criteria to show that we have success. This is one of the main indictments that Jesus has on the nation of Israel. So before we get too far, what I want to do really quick is define what criteria is. So criteria is a principle or standard by which something may be judged or decided. All right? When you took a test, think back to the last class you had. The criteria for passing that test was you had to score a 60 or above to pass, okay? When I make an assignment for my kids at the middle school, I tell them, here's what I want you to do. Or here's how you show me that you understand the material that I presented to you. And so in our walk with Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, what's our criteria? If we're truly following and pursuing Jesus, how do we know that that's a reality? How do we know that our lives are being transformed? And then we have to come to this whole conclusion about what's, what salvation actually means for us in our daily lives. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to see a little picture here of a couple of groups of leaders that are going to kind of pressure Jesus' authority. We talked at length about Jesus' authority, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about that. But then we're going to see three parables where Jesus progressively ramps up his indictment of these leaders of Israel. And it's not just the leaders, it really is Israel as a whole. And then it comes back to us and our conclusions about within our new identity in Jesus, what does it mean to pursue and walk with Jesus? Here we go, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, so he's teaching in the temple, the chief priests and the elders, two religious elite groups that were in charge of overseeing uh, the activities of the temple and kind of default set boundaries and rules and traditions around what it meant to worship God came up to him as he was teaching. So he's in the middle of teaching. They come up to him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? 
And when he's talking about these things, that could mean simply the fact that he's teaching in the temple, which he would have had to have been okayed with by somebody else to say, we give this person the authority to teach in the temple. Jesus never did that. He just kind of started teaching. Um, or it could mean it's just authority to cast out demons, to create this new dynamic, to heal people, all that stuff. And Jesus answered them, and I love what he does. He doesn't tell them an answer. Instead, he asks them a question. He makes a deal with them. He says, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? Heaven or from man? So he thinks back to John the Baptist and he asks him the question. And they kind of get in this like huddle and they go, okay, let's, let's figure out what he wants us to do here. And he says, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? And by default, believe in Jesus as the Messiah, right? Because John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the Messiah. But if we say for man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold John was a prophet. So, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus doesn't tell them an answer, which is interesting. It's sort of like in, back in 2015 when the Mets were on a World Series run and all these Dodger fans come up to me. They were like, oh, I've been a Dodger fan since I was four. And I was like, really? Tell me two players that play for the Dodgers. And they were like, I don't know. So, well, not really a Dodger fan, then are you? Uh, that was also would speak to how obsessive I would be about the Mets when I could name like probably their entire team, but that's, that's beside the point. Anyway, uh, he says, neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. They have this problem. The issue is if they say that John's a prophet, that undermines their authority. If they say that he's not a prophet, it undermines their status. The people will go, you don't think John the Baptist is a prophet? We believe he's a prophet. And now they've lost their status and standing in society. So Jesus forces them to make a decision. Either you have to acknowledge the fact that I'm the Messiah, or you reject it. And so then he goes on to teach a couple parables in response to this. And what I love about it is the response of the, of the leaders in the midst of the conversation. Because they don't like get it until like the third parable. Then they're like, oh, wait a minute. He's talking about us. It's just awesome. So here we go. 28. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through three parables. I'm going to give you a kind of a brief overview at 30,000 feet of what's going on in the parable. And then at the end of each parable, we're going to have one question. And then at the end, we're going to revisit those three questions. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Uh-oh. Yes. Good? Okay. Let's. There's always one person that says, nobody's like, already like, I'm not sure, but yeah, let's just kind of go with it, all right? So three parables, three questions. We'll revisit them at the end. If you're not with me, then let's go. Here we go. 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said, to the, same, said the same, and, the ans- and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they, the leaders, they say, the first, obviously, because eventually he did the right thing. He said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. It's, amen. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you 
saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. It's a pretty strong indictment here. He basically says, you know that the first son was the obedient son. And I'm telling you that first son is the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And you are the second son who says, yeah, but that didn't do anything. That's a stinging indictment. But they still haven't quite connected with it yet. So the first son represents this new group of people that are welcomed in by the kingdom of God. And the second son represents Israel, constantly being asked to do the right thing and then saying they're going to do the right thing and then not doing it. It was this idea of a promise and performance and which one is most important. So the question we ask about this that we're going to come back to at the end is what defines being obedient to God? It's the question we're going to ask. It's a simple enough question. We'll visit that at the end. Let's go to the second parable. 33, hear another parable. There was a master of a house, the master represents God, who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. That vineyard would represent Israel. The tenants would represent the leaders. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants, which represent prophets, teachers, people coming and pleading with Israel to turn and follow God. The t- tenants to get his fruit, to gather up what his prophet was. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed the other and stoned the other. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. The ruler of the vineyard sends his son to the people that are running the vineyard for the leader, which is... Interesting, an interesting picture, because if you were an Israelite and you saw this, you're in the impersonation of Israel, a Jew, and you heard that message, that would have been a really strong indication they should really do the right thing. Send the son, the heir of the vineyard. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asked them that question. And they said to him, he will put those wretches into a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Like, they're going to get him. They're going to destroy him. It's going to be awesome. And Jesus says to them, have you ever read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. So they're like, yeah, you got to get those guys that took the vineyard. And then Jesus quotes this well-known psalm, Psalm 118, which Caitlin read for us this morning. He talks about the stone that's rejected, which means Israel in that psalm. But now it means Jesus. So Jesus takes on this role as the stone that is rejected by people and then becomes essential to the structure of the building. Have you ever seen like a Roman arch? If you study Roman history at all, which you haven't probably, but I have because I teach it, there's these arches at the top of the arch to hold it all together would put this big wedge stone in the middle of the arch and that weight distribution would lock everything else into place to where you could stack stuff on top of it. Without that cornerstone though, the arch just folds in on itself. What he's saying is there's this cornerstone. The builders are like, ah, it's not that important. It's not a big deal. It doesn't really fit. Get rid of it. 
And Jesus is saying, now that main stone is essential to the structural integrity. Jesus is the central theme. And if they didn't quite get it yet, Jesus goes one step further. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The basic premise of this, Jesus is a struggle to people, right? He confronts us in our innermost reality, and he can cause people to stumble. He can crush people with the reality of who he is. But in this parable, it doesn't leave much up to the imagination. He says, I'm going to take the kingdom of God from you. If you were Israel, and for the last thousands of years or so, you believe that you have a preeminent place in society as God's quote-unquote chosen people, and now some guy comes in and says, hey, listen, that kingdom that you've been waiting for, I'm going to take it from you. I'm not just going to reestablish it. You're not going to have any part in it. That would have been stinging. And now, finally, the chief priests and the Pharisees kind of start to get it. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables. They perceived that he was speaking to them now, though they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now they go, wait a minute. I think he's talking about us. Isn't it interesting that throughout Scripture, Jesus doesn't condemn the outsiders? He condemns the insiders. The people who go, yeah, I got it. Feel like we're in a pretty good spot. He's, he's coming to challenge those individuals. He doesn't challenge the outsiders. Instead, he brings the outsiders in. And to go one step further with that, he tells us one last parable. But the question from this parable is this. What does it mean to be a steward of the kingdom of God? Tenants are stewards. They're given something to take care of, to value, and to protect. If God gives the kingdom of God to his people, what does it mean for us to steward that? Okay, we'll revisit that question at the end. So one last parable. Here we go. Chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven. So now he's got a whole different introduction. He doesn't say, okay, I've got a question for you. He just straight up says, okay, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which we've been talking about at length in Matthew, right? This new identity, this new reality, this coming of crashing of heaven to earth. The kingdom of God may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. King being God, son being God. Jesus, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants. Again, these are prophets. These are people coming and pleading to Israel to turn. Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who invited were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go therefore. Which I love that language because remember Matthew 28, what does Jesus say to the disciples after he rises and tells them their mission? He says, go therefore. Here he says it again in this parable. He says, go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But look at what happens next. But when the king came, king came, he took to the guests. He looked at the guests. And he saw there a man who had on no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And so the king brought him in and gave him a wedding garment and hugged him and took him to the banquet. No. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into utter darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. We're going to revisit that last verse at the end. The very last thing we do. There's something really intense happening in this scripture. And that's on purpose. Remember, Jesus is telling a story. And he's using this intense literary language to drive home a central point. The king has a wedding. And this could be an allusion to Revelation, when there's this collision of the wedding of the church to the bridegroom, Jesus, that whole picture. Or it could just mean simply the fact that the kingdom of heaven is here. I'm inviting everybody to come be a part of it. People are rejecting it. No, I don't want to come. If you've ever, if you've ever been married, it's kind of an interesting question. Uh, If you've done a wedding, you know that before you have a wedding or before you have a party, you send out invitations. Now, do you control whether or not that person responds with RSVP? Or if they're like in their early 20s, they just call you and go, hey, I'm coming to your wedding. And you're like, okay, send out an RSVP. But sure, don't send it back. Just tell me. And we expect people to go, yes, I'm going to attend your wedding. They could still not show up. They could never respond. They could decline it. The question around salvation and election, I think, has become kind of an interesting polarizing debate about which kind of camp you kind of land into as far as as how salvation works. When you look at it in the simplicity of Scripture, it's really straightforward. There's an invitation. Do you accept it? Yes. No. When you show up, then we know for sure. So I can invite somebody to a wedding, to a party, and they may choose not to come. That's a reality. This whole notion of a wedding garment is like, a picture of when Isaiah talks about the fact that our righteousness or our self-righteousness or self-worthiness is filthy rags. It doesn't have the same kind of value, but we kind of check it as like, this is my evidence that I'm following Jesus. Look at all the things that I'm doing. So I show up to the wedding garment, like, hey, I show up to church and I go, hey, you know, I'm doing all these good things. Therefore, it must mean that I follow Jesus. Well, not necessarily, Not necessarily. And that's not to frighten anybody. It's to get to the core of what Jesus is really after in this kingdom of God. It's not a physical kingdom, yet it's a reality in the hearts of believers. So the third question that we are asked is, what does it mean to be chosen? Okay. So here we go. We've got three questions. Can I get those three questions up on the board? Here we go. What defines being obedient to God? What does it mean to be a steward of God's kingdom? And what does it mean to be chosen? If you would, I'm going to probably tackle the first and third and then come back to the second. But I don't know. We'll see how the first one goes, okay? Here we go. Notice in the first parable 
that there was an obedient group and there was a non-obedient group. That means there was a group that said they were going to do something and didn't do it. And we have to ask ourselves this question. If we're talking about obedience right now for us, which is kind of like a buzzword, you know, every time I tell my son, Leon, and I'm like, hey, listen, Leon, like, you just me, I don't want to do anything. Like, listen, Leon, you got to obey. Even I'm kind of like, ugh. Seems kind of like an intense way of saying things. It seems very old-fashioned. But the point of it is this. Obedience to God is something that is below the surface. I want you to think about, like, the fruits of the Spirit. And if any of you have had a garden, does anybody here have a garden or, like, have, like, trees or stuff? Yes, the Watsons have a phenomenal garden. It's beautiful. Uh, you know that you know it's a tomato plant because it produces tomatoes. Simple enough? Straightforward enough? You're not like, tomato plant, oh, wait a minute, these are apples. That's not going to work. Oh, how did I know this is an apple tree? Anyway, the point of it is, you know a fruit, you know what, you know what plant is because of the fruit that it produces, but I've never walked by a tomato plant and heard it be like, Gah! Like, I got to produce tomatoes! Leave me alone! If, you, if that has happened to you, then you probably are from Eugene. Uh, I'm from Eugene. That's okay. I can say that. It's fine. Look at my shoes. Uh, but the reality of it is, the fruits of the Spirit, the image of that is such that if we talk about obedience to God, sometimes we go to his God. I've got to be more patient. I've got to be more kind towards my kids. And in, in school, we tell kids this all the time. We tell them, like, be kind to each other. Be kind, be kind, be kind. But I, in my head, I'm like, they don't know Jesus. They can't really be kind. But that doesn't work in public school for some reason. So the problem is, the fruit of the Spirit are not meant to be this example where we're supposed to force to be an outcome in our life, Right? The reality is as the spirit indwells us and changes our internal reality and changes our heart, what's manifested are these amazing fruits. Become a more patient person and become a more gentle person. But our culture teaches that instead you have control over whether or not you are a patient, kind, generous, whatever person. And to an extent you do. But it doesn't come through mindfulness. I'm just going to take three deep breaths and then we're going to be a kind person. That's helpful but the reality of it is, to be truly manifesting those truths or truly be obedient, that means the internal reality has to have been transformed. But the problem is, or the nuance of it is, no one really sees that. I've never dug down below our trees in our backyard to figure out, why are these trees so healthy? Dig down, oh, their root system is running rampant all over my yard. That's why they're doing great. What happens below the surface is what manifests the fruit. So obedience to God has nothing to do with the external focus. So I want to free you for a second to understand that God is not asking you for external performance. If that's what you believe about following Jesus, then you would fall into the camp of the second person who, was, who said, yes, I want to do that. But then I got ah, failed again. I was angry with my spouse, or I got mad at my kids, or I was unkind to my coworker, or I didn't give that money when I, when I was called to give it. Whatever it may be, it has to happen below the surface. That's what obedience really has. But the question I would ask you is this. How much of what we do in an everyday routine of life is in conscious presence of God and Savior, and how much of it is simply religious practice for appearances? I think a lot of times 
the reason why we focus on the external or working out our, our salvation externally is because that's what people see. And that's what we want people to see. I want to be seen as a kind person. You know, when you get mad at your kids in public and you're like, oh man, everybody thinks I'm like evil now because I yelled at my kids, you know? Or they, throw, they do that thing where like they get mad and then they just kind of turn to jello all of a sudden and you're like dragging them by their arm through Fred Meyer and you're like... I have one guy who has, he just had his first kid and he was a friend. He was like, has the first kid. He's like, oh, my kid's never going to throw a fit in public. <laughs> I'm not going to let that happen. And I was like, all right, man. Cool. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Okay, dude, just real, realize that if that happens, it's okay. But we focus on that as the reality. So we curate this outward appearance so that nobody asks us any questions. It looks like they're fine. It looks like everything's okay. But below the surface, we don't know. So obedience to God, what it means is, You've got to decide the internal reality is it being transformed. Do you want to become more of a person of love? What are you doing to work on that? There's a great book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality where um, Pete Scazzaro says this truth. He says you can't claim to be spiritually mature but remain emotionally immature. They don't work together. And then the second question we have to ask is this. What does it mean to be a steward of God's kingdom? I think it's important to note that a lot of this language is really aimed at leaders, but it applies to the nation of Israel as a whole. But I I really think that this is really profound. What does it mean to be a steward of God's kingdom? We talk about the kingdom of God all the time, but what does it really mean to manifest that in our life? I believe it means that we have a role of carrying out God's purposes through the kingdom of God It's been taken away from the nation of Israel in a sense in the present age. And Jesus' disciples, we as disciples, currently enjoy both the blessings of the kingdom of God and the responsibility of carrying the message of the kingdom. And this means we must get to the core of what Jesus is actually calling us to do. It means we must be loyal to our true country, as C.S. Lewis calls it, our kingdom in heaven and not strictly to nationalism. It means when God calls us to love our neighbor, he actually wants us to love our neighbor. It's funny, a long time ago, kind of go, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And they create all these different scenarios. Like, well, it could mean all of these different things. It could mean being a great coworker. Could, what if it just means loving your neighbor? Like literally your neighbor next door to you. Or the guy that's next door to us is a guy named Marv. He's like in his 90s. He's awesome. He's like, he was a veteran of Korea and he's kind of had some leg issues. And so I mowed his lawn for him. My neighbor, just trying to love my neighbor who's going through a difficult time. Do you even know who lives next to you? Have you talked to them? Have you found ways to minister to them? That's what it means to bring the kingdom of God to people's lives. It's not this like, okay, I'm just going to sit back and just enjoy the fruits of the kingdom. You have to be out there actually doing something. There's a responsibility to tend to that. And it means the church should be a model of godliness, holiness, and purity a mechanism of God's love to a hopeless world. And it means the church must be a model of grace and humility and transparency and forgiveness when people don't live up to that role. I had an interesting end of the week. I've been reading a a memoir uh, by a woman who was raised in like a, a Christian doomsday cult. And then I... I was reading a story by an author named Michael Lewis, and he talks about this woman, and she's this epidemiologist, 
and she had this horrible church experience at a church in Junction City, and she kind of like went off on that in her book. And then I called one of my friends from back when I was a pastor at a church who recently gone through just a really dark time in his life as a result of him stepping down from leadership and being abandoned by his church family. And then I saw on Twitter all these different things going on with different pastors and leaders, and I was talking to my friends about it, and I just felt really burdened. And what, what, what the burden to me was this. I wonder if we're so concerned about the church becoming irrelevant in America, we're so concerned the church is just not, as, it's not, it's not doing it's not important anymore, nobody really values the church anymore. I wonder if that's because the church isn't really doing anything. And I wonder if that's because sometimes the church is doing more harm than good. And I don't mean this church here. I just mean in general speaking. We're so afraid of losing our position in society as Christians. Oh, the culture's just going, it's going away. I can't believe the church, this isn't important. You don't value the things of the church anymore. Well, yeah, yes, that's true. Culture is always going to be culture. Culture is always going to be claiming the progressive movement forward. And sometimes it's going to butt up against what we believe as a church. But we don't fight that cultural struggle by talking about how much we're against things. Instead, we, we fight that cultural struggle, or not even the cultural struggle, we fight the kingdom of darkness by being light in our community. So I wonder if we're so afraid of losing our relevance as a church and we think, oh, and the church in America is dying. Nobody cares anymore. You know what? The church worldwide is flourishing. Do you know that? Do you know where the gospel is flourishing? Iran. The Horn of Africa. Think about, think about that. So it's not that the church is, the church is uh, going down. It's the American church just doesn't really do anything. Mega churches and cults of personality and no leadership and no accountability and no elder board, and they just go, yeah, we're doing church. And you kind of go, but really, though, we have to get to the point of asking ourselves the question, what is the church here for? What are we called to do as the church? I believe that the, the church is called to be a mechanism of God's love and grace in society. And when people fall and mess up and when leaders fall and mess up, the church is supposed to be like, well, see you later. Go figure it out somewhere else. We don't have time for you. Instead, I think the church is supposed to partner with people, to be transparent, to understand what it is to walk with somebody through a horrible time, to be pieced back together. That's an important part of our existence. And the reality of it is, is that the Israelites had taken on that same kind of mentality, and, and now the Lord basically said, I'm going to take the kingdom of God from you. And one commentator pointed to the fact, he said, God could do that. God could take that relevance from you. And I, th I, th I think our relevance and our desire to be current in our society comes to the fact that we, as a body, have got to be more proactive about who's God called us to love. And, and I think it's just impor important to understand that. I feel like that's a really big thing in our culture, and it was hard to hear from people that I loved who had hurt other people in churches that had hurt other people, and I just wanted to be like, man, we really got to think about what it means to love and care for people who fall, to hold up purity and godliness, and to be an example of that. Let's ask the last question, then we'll close. What does it mean to be chosen? 
Now, I've been around church for a long time. You know that this idea of chosen, the idea of being chosen, has this connotation of God says, chosen, 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 not chosen, not chosen, not chosen, not chosen, not chosen. And that comes from like our dodgeball mentality, right? You ever play dodgeball and it was like, my team, my team, my team, my team, my team, my team. Oh, I do, down to the last two people, you're like, I do not want that person on my team. Because I've drafted a perfect roster and this one person is going to tank my whole team. And so you don't pick that person. That's kind of the idea we have when it comes to chosen, right? There's chosen people, there's not chosen people. But that's not what this idea of chosen means in this context. And I want to point out very specifically, it says this. Many are called, but few are chosen. The idea of being called carries with it an invitation. You are called. Hey, come to the wedding. But your ability to show up to that wedding has nothing to do with the person that sent the invitation. You've got to decide if that invitation, you're going to take an RSVP and come to the wedding. And if you do show up to the wedding, that choice... The king gave his people these wedding garments to show that they were a part of the wedding party. If someone showed up without that, it meant that they weren't supposed to be there. And so this conversation of what it means to be chosen actually means that God has called us into a new identity. Are we going to accept that as our identity? Or are we going to settle for other things that make us feel like we're a part of it, but we're not really invested in it? The simple invitation is this. You are called by God, every single person. And now Jesus blows the doors off the kingdom of God and says, listen, this call, this invitation is to everybody. Israel, Jew, Gentile, wherever you're from, whatever nation, whatever socioeconomic status you're a part of, whatever race or ethnicity you are, country of origin you've come from, I've called you into this kingdom. I'm sending you an invitation. Come and believe but the choice is on those people to decide if they want to accept that or not. I could be elected to an office as an official, but still decide I don't want it. That's the whole conversation around election. Election is this thing where like, nobody has any power. You're just chosen. That's it. But what if it's like, I invited you. I voted you a decision. You still have a choice or not. You take that or not. If we are called and if we are chosen, I would ask us the question, are we living like we are God's chosen people? The criteria has shifted. It's not about your external stuff. It's not about showing up to the wedding in some garbs you made out of your own self-righteousness and the good deeds that you've done. It's about showing up, being clothed in a new identity, and living into that. You have to answer that question. You know, the crazy part about following Jesus is it's experienced in community, but the reality is internal. I can't see what happens below the surface. Nobody can see what's going on below the surface. That is on you and God working out in you and your obedience to that call. So the question I simply ask you is we live into that this week. The criteria for coming and being a part of the kingdom of God is simply put in acceptance of an invitation. And then to steward God's kingdom by valuing the things that Jesus valued, by doing the things that Jesus did, by going out to the community and, and being a part of that and loving your neighbor and knowing your neighbor and caring for your neighbor. 
instead of living your life just kind of like hedged in in your little groove. I just want to encourage you in that. And the freeing part about it is the beauty of following Jesus. He doesn't say that you should put those external works as the priority. What we do is we leap around the identity, right? We go, okay, I'm called, and now I've got to do some good stuff. And we kind of bypass this whole part that's our identity in Christ. That is, we have to press into that before we go to this part. We can't be a tree that's striving and pressuring ourselves to produce fruit. And so what we need to do is consider our lives and consider are we obeying Jesus in our everyday life. It doesn't mean you get up every morning and read your Bible for three hours. It doesn't mean you go and you pray in a dark room for six hours and that shows that you're righteous. Because if you show up here and you go, man, I was praying for six hours in my closet today and I really feel like I communed with God. Jesus says, that's, I'm not about you announcing that to the world. It's actually supposed to be a private thing. It's not about putting money in the tidy basket and going, well, you know, I give about $6,000 to the church every single year, so I'd like you to talk a little bit more about this. Now, that's not it at all either. Instead, you put it and you walk away. No one can know. Because it's about you and Jesus. It's not about me and looking at you and examining your life. You have got to do the examining. We have got to do the examining. I've got to do the examining. I've got to look at my own life and go, yikes. Need more of Jesus there. And Lord willing, that manifests itself in a great reality. But before we get there, it's got to be about our internal heart. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you, God, for allowing us to be in your presence. Thank you for um, your goodness and your faithfulness to us. God, I pray that you would give us great insight into who you are. I pray that you would allow us to understand more of the reality of stewarding this kingdom, God. I pray for us, God, that as a church, as redeemers here at this church, God, here this community, God, that you would guide us to understand what we are for, what we want to do in our community. I pray for the church family here, God, that you would give insight into the person in their life that they do life with, or that's a neighbor or a coworker or even just simply their family, their spouse, their children. I pray, God, that you would give them insight as to how they can steward that, how they can walk in your love in in, in that situation, God, with that person, what they can do to bring light into darkness, God. I pray for this church here, this would be a beacon of truly following that kingdom. And that as that happens, God, we would see many people come to know Jesus not for our fame, not for our status, but for your fame and for your work in the lives of people. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. Thank you for today. Thank you for this church. Would you bless us this week? Would you comfort us? Would you encourage us? Would you lead us into your truth? In Jesus' name we pray.